So I want to welcome you to Wycliffe College and, and to our women's breakfast. We have an exciting program uh, this morning. Linda has the lovely green jacket at the back, and uh, Linda is our speaker this morning. Linda, um, I met Linda, oh, a long, long time ago when I was doing... Um, the research for my PhD thesis, I spent about six months at Princeton, and Linda thinks we met in the dining hall or something, but we met each other, and uh, she befriended me. It was kind of a lonely time in my life, and she was doing her PhD there, so we became friends there, and our, our lives have intersected at various points along the way, and so I'm very excited that she's here. We had a wonderful day yesterday, so I can assure you we're in for a treat this morning. Not all academics can write as well as Linda can write. She is a trained journalist, and her her writing is compelling, and I think uh, people will agree with me that it's a very well-written book, and and you will enjoy it. But to get um, her her life story, she has her memoirs here, which I've also uh, read, and it's a wonderful uh, account of her uh, journey, as a spiritual person who then finds uh, Christ. And um, it's a very exciting read. So I've already introduced uh, Linda a little bit, and um, I'm very excited that uh, she is here at Wycliffe uh, this weekend. And her topic is so relevant to to all of us uh, because we live in a postmodern world that where we hobnob with lots of people who are who call themselves spiritual but not religious, and it's very helpful for us to understand what that means and how, uh, how, how we can even understand ourselves better in this culture where people in the church are also influenced by what's going on in our culture. So I, I think you'll find what Linda has to say very helpful and insightful. So without further ado, I'm going to invite Linda to uh, take over. So thank you very much. Welcome, uh, Linda Mercadante, please. Thank you. Thank you, Marion. As Marion said, we're, we've been friends for a long time, which is so wonderful to be able to come back and, and work together and see each other. I even spent a week up at Eagle Lake where they spend the summers. So I actually did some of my research up there. So it's wonderful also for me to be back in Canada. Um, I really, really love Canada, I have to say that. I went to Regent College in Vancouver, BC, and I was up there for five years. And if I, uh, uh, this is gonna sound silly, but if I could have found a Canadian to marry, I would have been set. (laughs) I really wanted to stay. But, you know, you probably have too many Americans as it is. So I didn't get to stay. But at any rate, I live in Ohio now, and I'm originally from New Jersey. But I really, uh, really love Canada. And so thank you so much for inviting me and for this nice turnout, I really appreciate it. Let me start by asking you, how many people here um, have raised their kids, if you have kids or you know, nieces and nephews, raised them in the church? And how many of your kids are still pretty involved in the church? Well, uh, I give you a complete, my complete blessings on everything that you have done to get this to happen. But a lot of us, have raised our children in the church, and they aren't going into church anymore. Is anybody in that position? A lot, right. And that's my my story, too. So um, so this is a very, very, very important topic for a lot of reasons. And today I'll just be able to share a bit of my research. I don't know if anyone was at my talk last night, 
but uh, it'll be somewhat, is anyone, was anyone here last night? Okay, so it won't be exactly the same. I'm gonna be bringing in more things that I didn't have last night, so that's good for you. So you'll get everything. All right, so anyway, uh, and I apologize if you can't see the slides really well. I tried to adjust the color on it, and I'm with only moderate success. But um, why do I care about spiritual but not religious? Most people would say, well, you're a theologian. I'm, an or I'm ordained in the Presbyterian Church USA, and I teach at a United Methodist Seminary in Ohio. In Ohio. So with all of that, why aren't I writing the, the latest book on Christology or Carl, Carl Barth or something? Why am I writing a book on spiritual but not religious? Because I was once myself spiritual but not religious. And that's all spelled out pretty completely in my memoir, Bloomfield Avenue, A Jewish Catholic Jersey Girl's Spiritual Journey. Um, but to give you a thumbnail sketch of it, uh, my father was an Italian immigrant directly coming here from Italy. And my mother was second generation, Russian and Austrian immigrant, Jewish. And because he was a Catholic and she was Jewish, their families really objected to them getting married. Uh, you know, they, you remember this, they used to call that a mixed marriage and it was considered shameful and wrong. So my parents were, felt if, any, if, if their religions didn't approve of their love, then there was something wrong with those religions. A sad conclusion. So they decided to put their religions on a back shelf, like a wedding gift that they were embarrassed about, and to have no religion in the home. So I was raised with no religion whatsoever, and that was their decision. Sorry about the sun in your eyes. I don't think I can fix that. Okay, so anyway, um, I, but I had a longing to know God because I think children are naturally spiritual and, and are very responsive to the idea of God and to having a relationship with God. And I, I was like that. Um, but everyone I knew, all my little cousins and you know, on both sides of the family, the Jewish side and the Italian Catholic side, they all knew who they were. They knew where they belonged, and I didn't. And so that kind of set me off on a long, long pilgrimage. I like to tell my students that if you want to produce a theologian, you should deny them all religion. <laughs> my parents really didn't want to produce a theologian. In fact, my parents were, were, were not totally thrilled. Like some of you may, who have maybe produced a minister in your family would be proud and happy and telling all your friends. My parents didn't tell anybody, and they weren't proud, and they weren't happy because they thought there was something wrong with me. They thought I was a little, a little weird. I should have wanted to grow up to marry a doctor or a lawyer and to have a lovely home in the suburbs and to get my nails done. Because as immigrants, that was their dream. That was like the big dream that they would have for me. And oh, and I could also uh, become an elementary school teacher until I got married to this doctor or lawyer. Okay, so unfortunately I did not follow the game plan. I tried, but it didn't work out. And in the end, I, I, I did get to go to college and get an education and tried to be a Catholic for a while. That was, not, uh, that was fine for a while, but eventually I had too many questions and I, I really did feel a call to ministry, but I didn't know it. And so um, I, I eventually had to go on a pilgrimage. Part of that pilgrimage was becoming an atheist. So I was a significant atheist for quite a while. I'm not saying a decade, but for several years I was an atheist. And I really found it hard actually to be an atheist. The vacuum that I had inside, just rationality and, and without having anything in the middle and, and to fill that, that hole in the center just wasn't good. So I decided to start searching and I became spiritual but not religious. And I searched everywhere I could. I tried 
meditation. I tried, uh, I became, I joined an ashram. I was part of Swami, Swami Satchidananda's ashram. I tried unity. I tried everything. And I considered even more things that I didn't actually have time to try. So basically, I was a proto, you know, an early SBNR. And that's why I care. Because I had the big questions. I had theological questions. I didn't know that's what they were. Nobody told me. But um, I later found that's what the, that, that is what they are. And so my goal now, my mission now, is to help us appreciate and understand and take seriously people that say they're spiritual but not religious. It's really important to me that we listen to them. And I'll go into that soon. But that's why I care so much. So um, as I'm very blessed to be an academic, so if I have a problem, I usually could apply for a grant and find a way to solve it through research, which I love. And so I thought, well, I can't be the only one with this concern and this problem. I know a lot of people have the same issue. I think I'll study it. So I, I applied for and was awarded the Henry Luce III Fellowship in Theology. They only, uh, out of all the U.S. and Canada and all the academics, they only award six per year. And I was very, very fortunate to be given one of these fellowships, which helped pay for my research and my travel. And this, this project ended up taking me five years. That was, that was the beginning of it. So you can see the name of the project I started was called Unfettered Belief, Untethered Practice, Thinking Theologically About Spiritual But Not Religious. So what, what I said to the Luce Foundation was that the SBNR movement has definite theolo theological and society-wide practical implications. It challenges and offers opportunities to Christianity and other religions. So it wasn't something to be taken lightly and dismissed or minimized or ignored. It, we can't afford to do that. <clears throat> so uh, what resulted was my book, which is up here, Belief Without Borders, Inside the Minds of the Spiritual But Not Religious, and... Uh, somehow I really hit a nerve because the invitations to speak and to write and to be interviewed have not stopped uh, since the book came out. In fact, I was getting them even before the book came out. They've interviewed me for the New York Times. I've been on NBC's The Today Show. And you can see all these other places that I don't even list all the ones where I've been interviewed or had podcasts made. I was on NPR and so forth, National Public Radio. So um, I've been... It's, I realized, I mean, okay, I, I said this last night, but theologians were really, were basically unpopular, okay? But you used to go to a party, you used, they say, what do you do for a living? I'm a theologian. They go, right, what? <laughs> uh, yeah, okay. And then they say, well, <clears throat> where do you work? I work at a seminary. Oh, right, so that's what everybody does there. No, it's actually, theology's actually a field. Oh, really? Okay. I think I need a drink, they say. <laughs> and that's the end of that conversation. So um, the fact that this has all happened is, to me, completely amazing and, uh, and a big surprise because I got so used to being, you know, an, an unpopular theologian. So um, this was, uh, obviously, I touched a nerve. That's what I realized. And uh, I even got, an, uh, I got another award, best, one of the best spiritual books of the year, when my book came out last year. So um, I've gotten some wonderful reviews. These are just people you might recognize. Phyllis Tickle, the Pew Foundation, Diana Butler-Bass, they all <clears throat> were pleased with what I did and are, um, you know, endorsing it. And there's others, too. So, so that, that's enough about, you know, 
this, how lucky I got and how blessed I got. But let's ask ourselves what it means to be spiritual but not religious. Think, think to yourself, when was the first time you heard that and what, did you, what kind of assumptions did you make? We won't have time, I won't have time to ask everybody because this is a very big group. But let me tell you, when I ask other groups, here are some of the assumptions that come up. Some people say that they assume that if they say they're spiritual but not religious, they've experienced religious distress, which means they've been hurt by religion. Who here would say, yeah, they've been hurt by religion, and that's why they're SBNR? Okay. Others have said they're very, very critical of organized religion, and that's why they say that. Others, other people have said to me, well, the church hasn't offered them good community, so of course they're not happy there and they don't stay. And then others say, well, yeah, that's, there's that, but then scandals and politics have turned them off, and especially, I think, in the U.S. So those are some of them. But, there's, but then there, And on top of those assumptions, then, then the stereotypes start to come out. Because um, we tend, I think in the church, tend to stereotype those who are not like us sometimes. And here's some of the unflattering assumptions that I've heard people make. That they are salad bar spiritualists. Have you ever heard this? You know, a salad bar, right? You pick and you choose and take whatever you want. That they are inconsistent or lacking in depth. That they are angst-ridden, you know, that they're, they're very unhappy. That they're afraid of making a commitment, that they're commitment-phobic. Those are assumptions. You know, when people sit around, why, you know, why do your kids not go to church anymore? Why do your neighbors, how come we, when I drive out of my driveway on Sunday morning, everybody else's car is still in the driveway? What's going on, right? So here are some of the assumptions. And then more negative assumptions, that they want quick fix spirituality. No, they want mixed spirituality. They want drive-through spirituality. That, they, uh, that they're mostly well-off and maybe white women are, the, are more spiritual but not religious. That they, uh, that they really don't care what they believe and it's not even important to them. These are, again, these are stereotypes and assumptions. I'm not saying these are true. I'm saying these are what people think. Um, that they consider themselves beyond religion. Like, oh, I'm, 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 so, I'm so over that. You know, I'm so much more developed than to need a crutch like that. Have you heard any of these things I'm saying? And that they're all wannabes. You know what a wannabe is? Any tradition but their own? So these are the things we assume. Now, when I went into the research, which consisted of interviewing hundreds and hundreds of people that say they're spiritual but not religious, when I began the research, I had heard all these assumptions from my friends and colleagues and uh, other pastors and uh, church leaders and theologians. And so I didn't, you know, I didn't, it didn't seem right to me because that, well, because that's not how I was when I was an SBNR, and it's not how the other people I knew who are SBNRs are. So I figured I'd better look into this and see if these are true. But I also heard sometimes some really positive assumptions, like, well, we're all kind of dead and just pew warmers, and they're the, you know, the high spiritual uh, prophets of our age. People have said, no, no, they're the real seekers after God. They're just leaving dead religion behind. These are assumptions. That they're free thinkers and free spirits. That they're courageous. That they're countercultural for a good cause. So have you heard, ever heard that? And, you know, we, we do guilt really well in the church. And so those are good, good guilt-provoking things to say to yourself. Well, maybe it's us that's the problem. Maybe we're just 
and you know, dead in our religion, and maybe we're not spiritual, we're just doing the, you know, it's doing it out of habit or just doing it because, you know, we don't know what else to do. So those are positive assumptions. In fact, there's more, that they're, they're going to bring in a new age, that they are more highly evolved spiritually, that they're more contemporary, like we're old, stick-in-the-muds, traditional, old-fashioned people, but they're cool, and they're, they're, they're the cool kids, and we're not the cool kids. Um, that, it's, that they have a backlash against moral absolutism and rigidity in the church. Or that they're more open-minded, tolerant, and accepting. So you can see that there's a, some really bad, really big negative stereotypes and some really big positive stereotypes that are in the air. Okay, before I say what, what I found, let's just look at the hard facts. Because as much as we might want to deny it, minimize it, or ignore it, you can't. Because the, dram the dramatic rise in the unaffiliated is very, very clear. Um, Canada and the U.S.'s religious landscape is changing. This is very credible information from the Pew Forum. And you can see that, and this, is, this, this chart is from Canada. So you can see that, that pro, the, pro, oh, the Protestant percentages have dropped precipitously from 1971 to 2011, and they're lower, they're lower now, because we're in you know, 2015. So that's very, very sharp and significant. The Catholic population hasn't really done all that well either. In the same time period, they've gone from 47% to 39%. Now in Canada, you have somewhat of a unique situation in that you have a rise in other religions that um, is seeming to be, it's not as, it's not dramatically humongous, but it's there and it's, it's significant to take into account. But look at this, the most sharp uh, line here is this one, which is the religious unaffiliated. These are the people that are N-O-N-E-S, nuns, okay? <clears throat> not all of those nuns say they're spiritual but not religious, but 25 to 50% of them do. And you can see that the most dramatic increase, or the most dramatic percentage difference is in this group, okay? That's really important to recognize. So in a lot of ways, <clears throat> we have to realize that there have been a, there's been a rapid decline in religious involvement, in religious affiliation, which means you're a member, in religious loyalty, in confidence in religion, in religious beliefs, and in religious upbringing. Less and less people are being raised in an organized religion in the church, in Judaism, in, in whatever. So although you uh, have a, a somewhat higher percentage of people that adhere to their other religions other than the Abrahamic traditions, well, other than Judaism and Christianity, you have more people that adhere that's, that come here and stay in their religions than we do in the U.S., you still see the same huge increase in people that are not affiliated. So... It isn't that Canada is going to be, um, become all Hindu or Muslim or Buddhist. You may have a, a rise in that group, but you're going to have a, more, a greater rise in spiritual but not religious or not unaffiliated. <clears throat> so these declines are both in both countries, as I said. They cut across all generations. It's not just in younger people. I've found them in all from silent generation all the way to the millennials. It's especially prevalent, however, in young adults, and, that, and so SBNRs, or nuns, become the fastest growing quote, religious group. <clears throat> they call it that because they don't know what else to call it. So as this um, person, uh, scholar from Lifeway Christian Resources says, 
Religion and its practices are decreasing and becoming increasingly privatized among the millennial generation. So if you have a child, and I'm sure there's people in this room that do, who say, don't worry, mom, I'm still a Christian, or don't worry, mom, I'm spiritual but not religious, even though I don't go to church, I'm still spiritual, and in your heart you want to say, well, they still have the values I raised them with, and they still believe, and so I'll try not to worry. But unfortunately, I hate to say this because I'm in the same boat as you, unfortunately, that's not going to be enough. It's not going to be enough to keep uh, the country the way it's been all these years, which is very supported by organized religion. Because the, uh, the further down that, that kind of impulse goes in the generations, the less and less religious belief and values stay. And um, in the end, you're, people are basically driving on the fumes of religion. So I'm not here to make you depressed, but I have to be honest, right? We have to look at this thing in the face. As the Aris says, American Religious Index Survey, one scholar says the challenge to Christianity doesn't come from other religions, but rather from a rejection of all forms of organized religion. So even the um, immigrants among you need to be concerned about this, even though you may say, I, you know, I'm Hindu and I want to keep my kids you know, Hindu, and so far, so good. Yeah, but what about the next? What about your grandchildren? What about the next generation? It's they're going to. Will they get assimilated? There's a good chance they will, and that they will then become unaffiliated. So why? The the big important issue was why is this happening, right? And I gave you all the assumptions that we tend to have, but really, that's not a good enough picture. Now, some people say, well, it's because you know, give me that old time religion. See that? That's bad religion. Okay. It's really not so much a reaction against bad religion. We like to, uh, any former Catholics here remember mea, mea culpa, mea culpa. That was like, it's my fault. You said that before communion, it's my fault. Um, unfortunately, we like to do guilt. We do guilt fairly well here, but uh, we actually aren't responsible for this complete change, actually. I'm not saying we're not in a part of it, but it's really not about bad religion. It's bigger than that. There are many factors at work. There are demographic changes, and I can't unpack all of these for you today, but um, shifts in, in uh, geographic mo the mobility and d different types of friendships and non-friendships, less friendships, less family connections, you know, all these things that you're very aware of, more mobility, as, as I said, more uh, fragmentation of knowledge and, and roles. Um, change, there's changes in our social landscape, more immigration and so forth, more options. There's changes in our intellectual landscape, which I wish I had time to unpack for you. Um, changes in believability patterns. Many people feel that what religions profess just isn't believable. And then changes in morality, which I find very interesting. And not that we're going from morality to immorality, but there's a change in morality. It's a different sense of morality. So many times what you explain to people from your church perspective does not make sense to them from their perspective. So uh, that's a lot of material that I unfortunately don't have time to unpack, although the book does have a lot of that in there. But what I really want to impress upon you today is that however you feel about this, you should really care about it. It's super, super important. We all need to know why it's happening, that it's, we need to know that it's happening, we need to know why it's happening, and then we need to know how can we respond, because we can. 
So we shouldn't just care because we want to make sure that building, that pretty church building stays standing and we have enough money to keep the lights on. That's not enough. We shouldn't just care because we want to perpetuate our way of life, which has been good for us, and we were, maybe you were raised in it, and it was a wonderful thing, and your parents gave, handed it down to you, and that was good. But that's still not enough. And not because we're thinking, well, it's my way or the highway. In other words, exclusivism. If you don't do it my way, then you're going to hell. Unfortunately, those things are not persuasive anymore, and they're not adequate. I know it seems like they should be, but they're not. There are very deep reasons to care, even though some of those reasons have validity, of course. I mean, I don't want churches to close either. And, uh, you know, I, I um, worry about eternal life and all that, and, and I, I care about the church that I joined as an adult and how it's nurtured me and loved me. And, I, of course, I care about that, and all my friends that are Christian, I care about that, and I don't want that to go away. But it's still not enough. But there's deeper reasons to care. Because everyone, everyone has a spiritual core. You know what Augustine says, right? Our hearts are restless till they rest in thee, O Lord. That's true for everybody because we're made in the image of God and we have that God-shaped hole in us. So everyone has that. We are restless until we rest in our source. And we all need to know what is the meaning of my life? What is the meaning of all our lives? These things are true for every human being. But we need each other on the spiritual journey. It isn't the Lone Ranger. It isn't a solo This is something that's only done, it's best done in community. So these are deep reasons to care, but those are also the key issues of organized religion. So organized religion has identified the real reasons that we should care about its perpetuation other than, it's a beautiful building, you know, I like the way I was raised. You know, those are okay, but they're not enough. There are deeper, deep reasons that you need to remember when you talk to people that uh, your kids or others who, not, who say, I don't need to do that anymore. Because they do, need, they do still have those needs. But you know what? There's also practical reasons to care. Because religion promotes the common good. Now, anything that's c- capable of great good, which religion is, is also, unfortunately, capable of great evil. And many people want to focus on the bad things that religion has done, and we can focus on that. But how about focusing on some of the very, very important things that religion has done to build up and preserve our society, like hospitals and, and, uh, and orphan asylums at one time, and universities and soup kitchens and you know missions and all that. What about all that? How about focusing on the things that, what's going to happen when those go away? That's a really important question. Religious people are three to, to, three to four times more likely to vote and get involved in, in, pro, in society, to work on community projects, to belong to voluntary associations, to be concerned about civic issues, and to donate time and money to causes. These are documented by sociologists. This isn't just wishful thinking and self-praise on the part of religious people. These, these studies have been done by sociologists who don't have a vested interest like we might in perpetuating organized religion. So sociologists are actually worried too. They're social scientists. They're worried about, they care about society and its you know, dynamics, and they are worried too. In fact, for young people, those who are active in religious communities are, have documentable better life outcomes. That doesn't mean they don't, they don't do bad things, but nevertheless, lined up side by side, especially in... in um, in African-American communities, I think. But really, for all of us, 
Young people that are active in the church have less drug and alcohol problems, better social resources and skills, have adult role models for good behavior, and they have better relationships with their family. This is, again, by statistics. This is surveys done by sociologists. So for all ages, they report, sociologists report that those who are involved in religious organizations have greater overall happiness, larger fellowship networks, and better mental and physical health. In fact, one study went so far as to say, if all you did was show up and sit in a pew, you didn't believe anything, you didn't agree with anybody there, but you just came and sat in a pew, your mortality rate would be lower. You wouldn't die as soon. Because <laughs> there's something about being in the presence of a community and that spiritual energy that's in there. So I felt I wanted to... to see why are the, the new searchers, why are the new SBNRs, unlike me, finding a, why are they not finding a home in the church? But, no, but all I heard about them was stereotypes and put-downs, so I thought, well, I'm going to talk to them myself, because surveys can only go so far. The surveys count, you know, well, uh, hi, I'm the Gallup poll, do you believe in God? Yes, okay, good, thank you, we're done. But what, what God are we talking about, or do you, belong, do you go to organized religion? Yeah, uh, which one? Well, I don't know. Okay, I'm a Presbyterian. Because, you know, oh, my mother took me there once. Okay, check. That's not really going deep enough. So I decided to talk to them myself. Because no one had been doing that and writing about it. So I went to look for spiritual but not religious people. And I found them everywhere. It was very easy for me to find them. I still find them every single day. It is not hard. They're all around us. Um, most churches have a ton of spiritual but not religious people right in the church, but of course, there's tons and tons outside the church. So the general characteristics of being an SBNR that I learned from my research is that, yes, it's more common among young adults, but it's also cross-generational. Of course, they're less likely to, to attend any kind of services. They're very open to non-traditional beliefs and practices. They are very interested in mysticism, and try to remember that, because Christianity has a very deep, mystical, spiritual tradition. In fact, we have many of them, and we have forgotten about that. And many people are looking for that, and we have thousands of years a track record on spiritual practices, all kinds. I mean, it's not just one kind. You can have Reformed spirituality, Wesleyan spirituality, you can have Paulist or Franciscan or, you know, Benedictine Lots and lots of types of spirituality that we have mostly forgotten, especially Protestants. Maybe Catholics haven't forgotten it quite as much. So that is what people are looking for, that kind of more personal experience. And so what the SBNRs, the reason they say, no, I'm spiritual but not religious, is because to them, religion is institutional, dogmatic, exterior, and unessential. And to them, spirituality is personal, private, open, individualistic, and core. So I, people always say to me in my, in my talks, wait, wait, before you go any further, tell me what you mean by spirituality and religion. And I always say, no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> Why? Because it's a false dichotomy. It's an amputation. You don't rip those things apart. Those things are synergistic. Those things are embedded in each other. Those things are, are together. Yes, you have people sitting in the pews, but do they pray? Okay, that's both things. Do they, do they uh, meditate? Do they serve? That's, so it's, you can't rip it apart. But SBNRs want to do that, and they're not doing it so much to protest organized religion. It's more of a rhetoric. 
a rhetoric for a boundary setting activity that it says that's why I don't need to do that. So that's very, very interesting. So who volunteered to be interviewed? Active seekers, risk takers, the transformed, and mostly they were self-selected. My research is called qualitative, and qualitative research goes, goes deep, while quantitative, that surveys, that goes broad. So my work was not necessarily, did not have to be representative of everybody, but it, it elaborates what they already found from statistics and gives it a lot more color and depth to it. I found them inside and outside religion. In fact, it was almost inevitable that when I'd go to a church and I'd say, I'm looking for people to interview, I'm writing a book, you know, they'd let me get up front and say, make a little announcement. And so if you have kids, grandkids, neighbors who are spiritual but not religious and they would like to talk about themselves, send them to me. Inevitably, at the end of my talk, the end of the worship service, I'd go out front and they'd, they'd, a bunch of people would pull me aside, they'd just say, come here, come here, away from the pastor, come here, come here. And then, and then they'd say, I'm spiritual but not religious. You need to talk to me. <laughs> and they would insist and I'd say, but you're, you're here in uh, First United Methodist Church Boulder. No, 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 that doesn't matter. You need to hear my story. I am spiritual but not religious. What is going on? I have had ministers come to me. And I said, really, Susan? Seriously? I know you went to seminary. I was your teacher. I know you're a pastor of a church. And you want me to interview you for, you, interview you for this project. Why? Because that's what I really am. And after a while, I was like, ah. What is going on? We need to figure this out. Thank God I'm a scholar and I have the luxury to do that. Sort of luxury. I mean, it's a lot of work, but thank God I can do it. So are our assumptions accurate? As I began this work and I really got involved with for five years and still now, really. Well, here's a lot of the assumptions that were not proven out. They did not test out. They, I did not find that the church routinely caused them religious distress. For those who even had been in a church, they mostly had, they either thought it was unimportant, they had moved beyond it, or they actually, many had fond memories. And I asked people this last night, what do you think was the, the sacrament they missed the most for those who had been involved in a church? Exactly. Potluck. <laughs> Coffee hour, potluck. They missed it. They said, I, it was so nice. Everybody, all those nice people that brought their, their fabulous food and sat and chatted with me and cared about me, I loved it. That's what they said. And they missed it. But why did they feel they had to leave? They felt compelled because that's what the cool kids are doing. That's what this ethos is so big that it sweeps people along like a wave from the ocean. It just sweeps people along. And unless we recognize that, we, won't, we will not be effective and we'll get swept along too. The church is not good at community. I didn't hear that very often. Occasionally, of course, you hear everything occasionally. But the majority of my interviewees did not use that as their main reason. Um, that there was, they were hostile to religion. No, they, they thought it was unimportant, but I didn't get a ton of hostility. In fact, you would think that they would be hostile to me. If it, I were them, I'd be hostile to me, because I'd say, hey, religion's stupid, and I was hurt by it, so I'm going to dump on her, because she's, she's like really identified with organized religion, so I would have done that. Okay, I'm from New Jersey. Like, that's, you know, <laughs> we hold nothing back. 
That's what my husband says. He says, you have no filters in New Jersey. I know that's not like that in Canada at all. You're, so, you're really polite. Okay. But if it were me, I would, if I had any complaint against the church, I would have looked for that interviewer, and I would have, I would have had a field day with her. I didn't, that didn't happen. Instead, and I told them, I'm an ordained minister, I'm a theologian, I teach at a seminary. I mean, that's pretty, pretty highly identified with religion. But um, instead, they were grateful and, and happy and so insistent that I listened to them. And always our interviews ended with a hug. Men, women, didn't matter, old, young, old. They were very, very pleased, and they would always say, thank you for giving me so much to think about. <clears throat> and then... <clears throat> It, they didn't find alternative spiritualities to be more open and accepting. They had bad experiences in other groups, too. Sweat lodges, uh, yoga classes, meditation, alternative other, you know, newer religions and things. They, they could report similar things. Not, not always, but I mean, it wasn't just, they're good. you're bad, they're good. That wasn't the way it was. What about some other popular assumptions? I'll go on the left, I'll put down what they were, and then on the right, I'll put down what I found. Are they spirituals, Salabar spiritualists? Are they inconsistent or lacking in depth? Are they angst-ridden? Are they commitment-phobic? Well, I found them to be restless seekers, but not necessarily Salabar spiritualists, which is rather demeaning. Were they inconsistent? No, they were just religiously illiterate. They didn't have tools. They didn't know how to work with their big questions. Were they angst-ridden? Sometimes, but not always. Sometimes they were quite happy with their freedoms. Were they commitment-phobic? No, it wasn't that they were commitment-phobic, it's that they really didn't think truth was possible to find, or that it even existed. And they'd say, it's my truth, your truth, which is obviously not the definition of truth. How about more assumptions? Did they want quick-fix spirituality? Or is it, was it mostly white and whites and women and upper-class people? Did they consider themselves beyond religion? Were they all wannabes? Well, they were. we are all part of an impatient, high-stimulation culture, so yes, in a way, they were looking for uh, experience, like immediate experience. Were they more, yeah, in some ways, more white, more middle-class, more women, but that in itself is very important to test. That doesn't, definitely does not mean this is not an important movement. It means it's a very important movement because why are women drawn to it? Why are more people, why are more uh, middle class white women drawn to it? That's an important thing to study. It's not a dismissal. It's super important. Not, I mean, I've found plenty of men. I've found plenty of uh, racial and ethnic minorities, lots of LGBTQ people, tons of, of them that wanted to talk. But, um, <clears throat> but it does take some resources to be spiritual but not religious. Church is free, but you take a yoga class and you're going to pay. You go on a retreat, somewhere like Esalen or, you know, some big New Age retreat center, you better have some money. So, you know, but, but the people with the money are in the forefront, and as things go along, it's going to become more and more available, maybe for lower cost. But these spiritualities have become commodities. Are they, do they think they're beyond religion? Sometimes, but there's also a longing for that, that they, they don't have anymore, that they observe and wish they could have. And any tradition but their own, there's some rejection of their own roots, but not always. So what do they have in common? 
we often think there, there are people that left the church, that's disaffiliation. Well, what I really found was it was mostly unaffiliation. In other words, they never were involved in religion to begin with. They weren't raised with religion like I wasn't. Syn there was a lot of syncretism and hybridity going on. Syncretism means pick and choose whatever you want. Hybridity is trying to maybe blend two important traditions together. I found a lot of that. Um, they did protest exclusivism, which is my way or the highway. You know, you, if you don't go my way, you go to hell. They protested that. They were very comfortable giving up uncertainty. They felt that they didn't have to know the truth. And they had assumptions regarding community, that community was meant to be therapeutic. In other words, it was meant to be about healing, not about worship. That they had less focus on outward action and more on inward repair, say, and they were pretty open-ended regarding commitment. They didn't see that commitment was any kind of long-term necessity. For, there were also some very interesting theological positions. The divine, the transcendence, or whatever you want to call it, was not seen as God. They never used the word God. Instead, they would use, they would see that there was an energy out there, like an impersonal energy or an uninvolved source, but certainly nothing or no one that they could pray to, have a relationship with, uh, talk about, that was not there. So it was either non-theistic or monistic, if you know any philosophy. So it was not the kind of God that Christianity talks about. What about heaven and hell? They didn't like heaven and hell usually, but they really often liked reincarnation. Now, uh, they either had a, a strong view, a, a strong belief or trust in reincarnation, or they felt that the afterlife was just blending in with the universal energy source. That might seem really sad to Christians. I think it's, I, I think it is sad, but, but the, the reincarnation view just seemed to fit with their uh, North American ethos, which is onward and upward, progress, progress, progress. But if you know anything about reincarnation, that's not really how that works. You could go backwards too, so you better watch out. None of my, and even my interviews, they talked about their past lives. They were always a queen or a king or a ruler. It's really fun. It's interesting. So, you know, it's so Amer it's really so North American. You know, it really is very North. It's like, this is, we, we created this. This is our thing, okay? This is not uh, some tradition that they resurrected. This is like a new thing. Um, so it's really American or North American versions of Eastern religion. Is it? Kind of, not exactly. Newsweek had an article, are we all Hindu now because they found so many people believed in reincarnation? No, because the kind of reincarnation they're believing in is basically progress. It's not, there's no end point. There's no, you don't get there. There is no there to get to. It's always like, well, what will I come back as next time? Um, lots of less, lo less religious upbringing, lots of them. The younger they got, the less they understood about religion or were exposed to it. My first question in my interview is, was always, how was spirituality expressed in the environment you grew up in? Uh, more than 50% of my millennial generation said to me, simply, it wasn't. So what's going on here? Why are less and less people being raised with any exposure whatsoever to religion? And also, there was a lot less or very eclectic or minimal communal involvement. So there wasn't a, a heritage for them of long-term 
commitment to, a com to one community. Now, I'm not saying they didn't care about community and they didn't want friends. They, they're normal people, but um, they don't get the idea of sticking with something uh, as a communal, spiritual maturity vehicle. They don't get that. So what do they teach us? Here's what we can learn from them. Commitment has to be very gently taught because it's counterintuitive in this setting. Seekers need compassionate guides. My uh, interviewees were very happy to talk about their spiritual lives, about their spiritual journeys, about their beliefs. They really, really liked that. And they, had, they always said, you know, nobody ever talks to me about this. Nobody's ever asked me these things. This is great. I didn't even know people thought about this stuff. In fact, I was at a block party about a month ago in my neighborhood, and I sat down next to a neighbor that I know, and then another neighbor who I didn't know sat down, and he said, I just don't understand why people cannot get along, why human beings are not getting along with each other. And I said, well, that's a very important question. He didn't know me, he didn't know what I did for a living. I said, that's a super important question. That's one of the, what I call the big questions. And he and I started then a, a running dialogue, which we've kept up, because he said, I have no one to talk to about these things. And when he, when he found out what I did for a living, he was like, whoa, this is good. So he's been sending me these very long emails <laughs> about truth. Truth. How do you like that? I even invited him to class because I thought he wouldn't really love to go to school. Um, <clears throat> so what else do we learn? That doubts and questions should be welcome. Being afraid, being defensive, cutting them off is a big mistake. Counterproductive. Seekers want to be challenged. When I would say to them, you said this here, and then I know earlier you said that, and those don't seem to fit in. For instance, let's say they said, <clears throat> there is no God in the sky, and I don't believe in a clown in the sky. They literally said that. And, or an old white man on a cloud. I don't get that. And then, then they, and they, there's, there's energy, but I plug into it. I, okay, fine. Then later down the, down the road in the interview, they'd say, the universe told me to do this. How does that work? How does that work? If the universe is personally involved with you, but you say that's not the way it is, I don't get that. Help me understand your thinking. I wasn't challenging them, but I was, you know, wanted to clarify. And they'd say, you know, I never thought of that. You gave me a lot to think about. And sometimes they'd call me up in a few days and said, and said can we talk more? Because that was really interesting. So you will be very pleased if you make an effort that you'll find how open people are, providing you're not coming across as judgmental, self-righteous, critical, all that's got to go. We've got to sweep that right away. But curious, interested, caring is going to go a long, long way. Humble confidence, though, is attractive. You don't need to give, throw your faith away. That would be a big mistake. But belonging might have to come before believing. If you want them to sign on the dotted line of Jesus Christ as their Savior, you're not going to reach them that way. But they may be nurtured into it by understanding that community is part of spiritual growth, that you need that. Uh, the tools of theological thinking are desperately needed, and I'm glad I'm doing this at Wycliffe because your students, the students here are great. And on top of things, and we had a wonderful conversation with a young man last night who was so, I could tell, so thoughtful and well-trained and in, in touch with all this. And I thought, thank God there's a place that's doing this in this world. That's important. We need more of that. So connect with them. To connect with SBNRs, avoid those stereotypes I gave you. And I mean, avoid the stereotypes of religion, too. Don't just avoid stereotypes of them. Don't stereotype yourself. 
Um, avoid apologizing for religion. Not only is it unattractive, but it's not, just not a good idea because there's so much good that religion has done. So don't just focus on the bad. Don't simply assume they've been hurt by religion. Be aware of the morality of self-fulfillment. Our morality systems have changed. People now are looking not for heaven and hell or where am I going after death, but how will I be fulfilled in this life? Be aware of that. Don't assume it's narcissism. It's, it's a new morality, a different morality. Affirm their spiritual seeking. When that man came up to me in the neighborhood, I said, oh, this is, you know, I'm so uh, impressed that you're asking these huge, important questions. So, of course, I wanted to affirm him because, well, I would like to teach him. I mean, I would like to work with him, but he didn't want to go to school, so that didn't work. But I wasn't trying to recruit him, but I was it, happy that he, could th- that he was thinking so deeply, and I wanted to affirm that. Um, affirm their desire for authenticity. That is a good, good motive. Be available for meaningful relationships, whether that's with somebody who cuts your hair, your neighbor. It's a little harder with your children because they already know what you're going to say. But, you know, why aren't you going to church? Mom, right? Um, To connect with them, be open to their questions and doubts. Be prepared to push their thinking deeper. You know how to do that without being offensive, without being critical. Just using using logic and your rationality, you can do that. Um, Learn and respect and use your own theological resources. Maybe you should take a class in theology. I bet you would love it. But some, many people here have already done that. It, most of my students that come, and we, we, we're starting to get a lot of SBNRs in the school, and they, in my seminary, and they come and they say, I had no idea that these people were thinking about these things for thousands of years. I had no idea there were this many ways to look at it. They're ex- exhilarated. <clears throat> so just some takeaways before we end. Recognize that faith and trust are as important as belief. Sometimes evangelicals or Christians get a little too over-focused on the cognitive, on the belief. Of course it's essential, but there's a whole package here. Faith, trust, it's, it's, it's more than just, you know, what is that you got the right answer to the right question. Restore your humble respect for divine mystery. We don't have God in our pocket. We don't know everything about God. God is a mystery, the way SBNR say. It's true. But God is also revealed through, to us through Jesus Christ. So fortunately, we know enough about God to trust God. That's why the incarnation is so important, and that's a whole other lecture. And I could talk on Christology for hours, because I teach that. And the Trinity, I bet you don't know how wonderful the doctrine of the Trinity is. You'll probably have no idea how exciting that doctrine is. But I don't have time for that. You can invite me back. <laughs> Model your spiritual experience. Don't keep it hidden. Talk about it. Realize that commitment in these days is going to have to be gently taught. And appreciate that seekers need compassionate guides, as I said before. So, doubts and questions should be welcomed. I'm just reminding, this is a summary. Seekers want to be challenged, and humble confidence is attractive. So for today's church, let's think about when we're with, with our church to foster a healthy spiritual community to focus on deep connection, to let belonging precede believing. I had some of my interviewees say, well, I don't know about the divinity of Christ, but I really like his message, and so I'm taking him as my guru. Would you not let that person in your church? 
That's okay as a start. It's a start. Um, share the tools of theological thinking and sharpen your own tools. Very, very, very important. So this is, this is basically a wake-up call to American religion. They want an experience of God. Are we helping them? They're more interested in issues than institutions. Are we focusing on the issues that they care about? Because some of them are extremely important for the survival of our society. Um, and then cur our current critical ethical and social problems really require that we all work together. It's not, we can't afford to just push them aside. A lot of them are deeply concerned about the things that concern all of us. So let's engage SBNRs as allies. And the most important thing I want you to remember is that true vitality is very, very attractive. So the SBNR movement is a new creative challenge for organized religion and for society. And as a, a, an end point, let me tell you that we've been through this before. Different issues have come up that looked for sure like they were going to destroy the church, and instead we came through them and were better and we're th we thrived and ju not just survived. I mean, Galileo, slavery, the ordination of women, all sorts of things have come and seen like, it would seem like they were going to do the church in, but in the end the church learned how to handle it. And that's our job now. So I have a website that I invite you to visit. It's under construction. You can still get into it. But there's going to be, there's a lot of resources in there. There's podcasts, there's articles, there's going to be some videos and interviews. And so that's something you might want to share with your churches. And finally, Marion wants me to have you talk to each other. So I have a set of questions here. But before I do that, I want to thank you so much for paying attention and for caring about the church. Here's our discussion questions, and I don't know how long Marion's going to give you for this. Can you read that? I'll, t I'll tell you what they say. First of all, describe the people you know who say they are spiritual but not religious. Do you consider yourself spiritual but not religious? Why or why not? Do you agree with the dichotomy between spirituality and religion as framed by SBNRs? Remember what I said? Institutional, exterior, you know, dogmatic versus personal, and um, non-experiential, experiential, personal, and core. In what ways can the church and organized religion in general find, reach, and help SBNRs? And finally, in what ways can we talk about the big questions with SBNRs? I'm encouraged uh, by what Linda has said and have some really good ideas as to how to pursue these friendships. So let me uh, just close in prayer. Um, uh, let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for our very full morning where we've been encouraged and stimulated and challenged. And we pray for Linda, for her ministry. We pray for our students here and our graduates and all of us in this room, Lord, as we go forth into this world to love and serve you. Uh, we pray that you might bless us uh, as we go forward and we trust in the power of the Spirit to guide us. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name.